Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Form Book Club, where we continue to discuss in defense of sanity. Oh, there it is. The best essay is J.K. Chesson. This is Vivian Dudro at my right, your left, and Father Fessio and Joseph Pierce is there. I'm going to dedicate today's session to our good friend and author, Robert Riley, hmm. uh, in defense of America. What was it? Oh, America in, de- in defense of the founding. In defense of the founding. He visited us uh, last evening. Uh, first, he had gone to a mass, which was the worst homily he'd ever heard in his life. He's a lo- I won't say what religious order with which I'm associated uh, gave that. And then we took him out to dinner to the wonderful beach chalet, you know, looking over the Pacific Ocean uh, in the parking lot where we had parked. And uh, while we're eating in broad daylight, the uh, people from San Francisco or maybe from elsewhere broke into his car, smashed three windows, took two backpacks, computer, and all his uh, personal information. So, Robert, we're dedicating this to you. Welcome to San Francisco. We hope you enjoyed your trip. And now when you get back to Washington, D.C., you won't (laughs) maybe think it's as bad as you did before. So I don't think we're going to cover more than three chapters because if we do, that's fine. But Chesterton is like, as I said, previous session is like condensed, you know, orange juice or condensed milk. You just have to go at it slowly. There's so much there. So we're going to begin with this chapter, Turning Inside Out. And I've got things I want to comment on here and things I want to quote. So I want to give Vivian you first chance to speak and then Joseph and I'll come in after that. Well, the title Turning Inside Out has to do with taking the most important things, which are inside and putting them outside where the lesser important things are, and modern people being very confused about this, particularly when it comes to the roles of women. And uh, there's so much in this chapter. I mean, I could just go on and on and on quoting from it. It's as relevant today as it was when he wrote it, probably even more so. looks like you want to quote. Well, the date is 1923, so it's almost 100 years ago. But does he not address what we're experiencing today? I he mean, he does address it. He, dr- he addresses the very sometimes dreadful trade-offs between um, a woman's commitment to her very young children and a woman having a profession outside the home and how difficult it is to balance this. And, uh, and to show you how uh, <laughs> relevant it is, I know, I wanted to give a shout-out to a, a recently published book called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Where's this? What page? By Erica Commissar. This is a recently published book. And I just want to give a shout out to that. This woman is talking about the same things Chesterton is talking about in this chapter. That shows you how prescient he was and how uh, relevant he still is. So what is it again? What's the title? Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And it's not written from a religious standpoint. It's written from a 
you know, health and well-being and flourishing standpoint. And it's been reviewed in the Wall Street Journal and all kinds of things. It's so I just want to throw that okay. out there so that people know Chesterton has got a lot of backup to support what he's saying. Well, just a quick quote from the beginning on page 159, about five, six lines down on the, the beginning there. And the moral is not fashionable in the press at the moment. What is to the effect that a woman may gain a professional success at the price of a domestic failure? And it is the convention of journalists at this moment to support what is feminist against what is feminine. At this moment, a hundred years ago in England? And now. Will we never learn? I had the same passage highlighted and... Uh, it's astonishing to me, you know, uh, I think Vivian used the word prescient. Uh, another word we could use is prophetic, um, that, uh, that Chesterton's talking about things here, that we've lost the feminine because of the ism, you know, and, 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 the, and, the, and the, the biggest losers of that uh, is not the masculine, although the masculine suffers as well, everybody suffers. It's the, it's the feminine that suffers from feminism, and it's children. That suffer from feminism. So it's, and we've, you know, we've had over a century of it because obviously Chesterton's talking about something which was, was current then. That's right. And he points out this irony that at this time that he's writing, uh, all of the social reformers are putting such an emphasis on the need for education, education right. and how important education is. And as he says um, on page 160, uh, that, you know, according to them, education is everything. Okay. Um, and then he goes on for, if there be any word of truth in all this talk about the education of the child, then there is certainly nothing but nonsense in nine tenths of the talk about the emancipation of the woman. If education is the highest function in the state, why should anybody want to be emancipated from the highest function in the state? It is as if we talked of commuting the sentence that condemned a man to be president of the United States. Now, I do want to emphasize that, you know, we're talking here about very young children. You know, those early years are just so important. Yes. And, um, and you know, sometimes that can get lost in the, in the case. But he actually makes it explicit on page 163 where he says, we cannot insist that the first years of infancy are of supreme importance and that mothers are not of supreme importance. And I think that is what we've sadly lost sight of, how supremely important mothers really we, are. I, I think you meant to say we cannot insist enough. we got to we correct this for the next printing. We cannot insist enough. I think that should be in there, don't you, as an editor? No, because he's saying we cannot insist one thing oh, I see. Okay, while right. at the same time not insisting okay. something else, you All see? Right. You're right. I got you. Right. We did it right the first time. All right. Yeah. Uh, and then he talks about how this abandonment of the inside world, the domestic world, the home, the hearth, is really because it's harder than the public life, right? He talks about this starting on page 166. He says, to be really at one with that man, meaning an individual person, you would have to solve real problems and believe that your own solutions were real. In dealing with the one man or the one person, you would really have a far huger and harder job than in dealing with your throng of thousands. And that is the job that people run away from when they wish to escape from domesticity to public work, especially educational work. 
They wish to escape from a sense of failure, which is simply a sense of fact. And, you know, I would throw out that a lot of times this is what causes divorce, that that um, it's hard taking care of one person, one spouse, one husband, and knowing that person through and through. And you can't help but feel that you've failed that person. You can't help sometimes but feel like your marriage is not all it should be. And it really is an escape from failure when people run away from family life in order to take up some cause or some public work or something they think or is even just, have a, To be a manager where you're in charge with 200 or 400 yeah. people, well, you don't have to know each one and figure out concrete problems. You've got these organizational problems. No. So he's saying it's a passage from a greater work to a smaller one, from a harder work to an easier one. And that is why most of the moderns do wish to pass from the great domestic task to the smaller and easier commercial one. Page 166. That's right. Well, I had that one. You've, you've got my two quotes for that page. That's good. Uh, I should interject here that Vivian is a homeschooling mom of four children. Uh, she also, during that time, did professional work. You was kind of part-time in Ignatius Press as an editor. I was a dabbler. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, straightening out jo Joseph Pierce's bad syntax. But No, no, no. But uh, so you know from firsthand what it's like. I actually remember you telling me when you taught your, like your two boys. You know, your first boy, Thomas, is he's more rational type, whereas Stephen is more artistic type. And so you had to teach them differently. I did. You know, you got four kids in your, in your home. And, you know, Thomas, you got to go through the syllogisms. Stephen, you got to show the pictures, you know. Yeah. And, it, you know, so she educated her, and there was two girls as well, who also were different in the way they approached things. I mean, no classroom teacher can do that. And these were the earlier years, you know, the grammar school yes. years. They all went to high school, well, all but one. So, you know, and, and, and I don't want to say that homeschooling per se is for everybody, but I will back up what Chesterton says, which is that um, it's the parent's responsibility to look after the education of the children and, and that this also gets lost sight of in often modern uh, sociological ideas or pedagogical ideas that somehow you know, the public institutions are going to do better than the family in the raising of children. And um, I think he says that on 162. Is that where you well, are? I'm looking at one. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. In the case of comparative poverty, which is a common lot of mankind, we come back to a general parental responsibility, which is the common sense of mankind. We come back to the parent as the person in charge of education. If you exalt the education, you must exalt the parental power with it. Exactly. And I would say that that's the governing principle that we that we must keep defending uh, uh, in the face of statist educational experts and this who is, think they can do a better again, job. Our beloved mother, the Catholic Church, has insisted on this uninterruptedly from the beginning that the parents have the first responsibility That's for the right. education of the children. And I, I'm, I'm very happy to see in the United States, uh, for example, in Florida recently, the legislature passed unanimously, Democrats and, public, and Republicans, nonpartisan, unanimously a bill that would introduce critical race theory. It was kind of surreptitiously done as a 
project-oriented civics or whatever. And the moms in Florida saw that. They saw what happened to their kids. They revolted. They rebelled peacefully, not just mostly peacefully, entirely peacefully. And so Governor DeSantis, he vetoed a bill that had been unanimously passed by his legislature because he saw that the moms were right. Joseph, we've been doing an awful lot of talking. Are you on mute? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm on voluntary mute because you're doing such a good job at, at, at the exposition of such an important uh, um, uh, topic here. The, the one thing I did want to um, highlight is one sentence, two sentences from Cheston on page 163 towards the bottom, because I think this encapsulates what you've been talking about, that it's not even ultimately about the efficiency of it. It's about whether, you know, children will be better educated or whether... Uh, mothers will be happier. It's about the fact that the family and the home comes first and that all power is devolved, should be devolved upwards and outwards from the family. So uh, towards the bottom of page 163, um, Chesterton says, all tends to the return of the simple truth that the private work is the great one and the public work the small. The human house is a paradox for it's larger inside than out. It reminds me of, um, of, of the last battle by C.S. Lewis, you know, yes. where <laughs> heaven is, you know, it's like an onion where every layer gets bigger than the one, one before it. So the human house is also a, a, a modern Doctor Who, the TARDIS, you know, the spaceship that is much, much larger on the inside than it is from the outside. The human home and the human family is that, and it is at the heart literally, of a healthy society. And insofar as we forget that or destroy that, we are forgetting and destroying the heart of human society and the anarchy that's going to be the consequence will be the fault of people that have engineered that. And one, just one thing about the Florida case you mentioned, it's not about the Florida case, but I did read something today um, uh, about the fact that the enrollment at uh, uh, kindergarten and pre-K and kindergarten uh, it's, uh, in the last year is down 13%. Yes. Now, that's actually very good news if it's Praise true. Praise God. Uh, you know, I, don't I don't necessarily trust statistics, but on the assumption that it's true, it's good news. Well, and you look at the prison populations, what is the, the leading indicator of what puts people in prison? It's not poverty. It's a lack of two parents. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lack of education at home. Well, you know, Cheston comes back to the same themes many times from many different, and we'll see that in coming forward here. But uh, he, he has a way of, of kind of summarizing it or encapsulating it that just makes it shine forth. And, you know, in a previous essay, he talked about poetry and free verse and so on. I mean, Chesterton is, is quite poetic in his writing. It's, oh, not, yes. it's not, I mean, it doesn't rhyme. There's no meter. There's alliteration. Uh, but the, the sentences flow. It's, it's not just prosaic. It's not like reading a sociology report, that's for sure. Right. So turning things inside out, have we, have we, have we discussed that enough? As far as I'm concerned, yes. We'll return to the Foreign Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. 
Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Bezio, Vivian Dudrow, and Joseph Pierce. Then let's go to <laughs> On Turnpikes and Medievalism. I love it how he talks at the beginning here, page 169, about an article which is entitled A Relic of Medievalism. And then he, later on she says, I fear the future will look at that sentence somewhat sadly and a little contemptuously as a very typical relic of modernism. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I'm going to quote a lot here. I mean, it will be a melancholy relic of the only period in all human history when people were proud of being modern. For though today is always today, and the moment is always modern, we're the only men in all history who fell back upon bragging about the mere fact that today is not yesterday. I fear that some in the future will explain it by saying that we had precious little else to brag about. <laughs> For whatever the medieval faults, they went with one merit. Medieval people were never worried about being medieval, and modern people do worry about, about being modern. But however that may be, this particular example may give food for thought, like many other instances of thoughtlessness. I like that. This example will give us food for thought, like many other instances of thoughtlessness. Oh, the guy... Yeah, actually, the only thing, Father, that I have highlighted in this is 
this is the second line, a relic of medievalism. Because if the if the modernism of the uh, the journalist is not made manifest in that in that very title, because what he means is a relic of the medieval, right? Medievalism, right, is an ism. It's a belief in things, right? He, well, the whole article is about the fact this is a relic of the medieval, something which belongs in medieval times. So the actual title is ungrammatical. It's not actually saying what he means. Well, what I love about the essay is that he then lists yeah. all oh, these really? relics of the past, yeah. right, including the printing press, including parliament, including the university. Uh, you know, this is brilliant for him to set up this you know, uh, modern horror of the Dark Ages and medieval times, and for him to take some of the most cherished institutions that modern men value and trace them to the Middle Ages. The well, like printing- Westminster Abbey, Dungeons of Uncommon, Joshua Canterbury Tales, the Tower of Giotto, you know. <laughs> he says, the bottom of page 171, if we were really relics of medieval- medievalism, dash, that is, if we had really been taught to think, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's really brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and also, I like towards the end. I didn't didn't highlight it. I don't necessarily know it's worth looking for, but I think he implies at the end that the turnpike is probably not medieval. It's probably more modern than that. That's funny, right? And certainly <laughs> yeah. in England, at least when I lived there, there were no turnpike modes at all. And it wasn't until I came to the states that, that there were all, the, all these new t- turnpikes. I mean. I, I'm not aware of people having to pay to go down a road in medieval times. I think no, that's but, a very idea. But they did in Roman times. They had toll roads and toll bridges and toll gates. And, you know, they were they were hustling you down, hustling for money at every turn, probably. But he makes a good point about that, saying, well, look, people yeah. use the roads to pay the tax. That's so right. That's good. What's wrong with that? Yeah. And here in California, uh, Joseph, we don't have turnpikes. We have freeways. So you don't pay tolls normally on a road, except that our gas tax yeah. is about half the price of the gasoline we're using. Yeah, you our know. gas is over $4 a gallon here now, and that's mostly yeah. because of taxes. Yep. So the freeway is not really free then? No, no. No, but, but, the tax is hidden. But now we have to figure out how, how to tax electric car drivers, because now that means only the people pumping gas are paying for the roads. That's not fair. But that's another discussion. Well, why is it, Joseph, <laughs> you're on the East Coast, you, you have these parkways, right? Parkways. You don't park, you drive. But then you go home in your driveway, you don't drive, you park. So, I, you know, there's something I don't quite get about the... Oh, if you're trying to confuse me, because, uh, you know, I, I, I am from the East, but I'm actually from East Anglia, so uh, don't don't try to baffle me well, with well, East Coast That's what we call... East Coast Joseph, English, that's, that's the extreme East. <laughs> <laughs> the, the extreme Orient. <laughs> All right, well, so, I mean, we're going to cover now this chapter, The Drift from Domesticity, which kind of goes back to the themes we had in that... It uh, does. It's, it's basically take two on uh, Inside Out. and uh, But it's because it's such an important topic, as Joseph just said. I mean, everything t- hinges on the family. And so uh, no wonder Chesterton writes about it as much as he does. And But he has a general principle about you reformers, don't destroy something unless you know what it was for. That's right. 
I don't understand this. Let's get rid of it. No, wait a second. He says, don't get rid of it until you do understand it. In fact, he puts it explicitly on 177. If they do not see the use of it, they had much better preserve it. They have no business even to think of destroying it until they have seen the use of it. And the it in this case is the family, because yeah. as we know, part of the modern project is to destroy the family. Joseph, I want to give you a chance to speak, because otherwise I'm going to start quoting Chesterton at great length here. Uh, quoting Chesterton at great length is always good, but I think the, the, the whole point about this of, is, is the cancel culture, right? As canceling the past, and it's the arrogance of ignorance. The, the fact that if we don't know something, we presume we're better than it. I mean, a natural fact, and this is the irony and the paradox, is exactly the same psychology as racism. The arrogance of ignorance, if we don't understand something such as another person or their beliefs or the color of their skin, we presume that they're inferior to us. And that's the irony is the, 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 the cancel culture is as bigoted as the people it criticizes. That's right. Oh, not, no, that's not true. It's more bigoted. Right. But, okay. So beginning on 173 is this general principle here, five lines down. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it, wrote the gate, and says, I don't see the use of this. Let's clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer it. If you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then when you can come back and tell me what, that you, do, what you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. Okay, continuing. The, that, this paradox rests on the most elementary common sense. The gate or fence, that is something we find there from tradition, from the past, did not grow there. It was not set up by sonambulists, sleepwalkers, who built it in their sleep. It is highly improbable that it was put there by escaped lunatics who were for some reason loose on the street. Some person had some reason we're thinking it would be a good thing for somebody. And until we know what the reason was, we really cannot judge whether the reason was reasonable. It is extremely probable that we have overlooked some whole aspect of the question. If something set up by human things like ourselves seems to be entirely meaningless and mysterious. There are reformers who get over this difficulty by assuming that all their fathers were fools. But if that be so, we can only say that folly appears to be a hereditary disease. Yeah, that's really hilarious. <laughs> but the truth is that nobody has any business to destroy a social institution until he has really seen it as an historical institution. And that's about the family. Uh, I'll go on, yeah. page 174. Interrupt me at will, because otherwise I'm going to go on here. Middle of the page. And when in the general emancipation of modern society, the Duchess says... She does not see why she should not play leapfrog, or the dean declares that he has no valid canonical reason why he should not stand on his head. We may say to these persons without patience, with patient benevolence, defer, therefore, the operation you contemplate, and you have realized by right reflection what principle or prejudice you are violating. Then play leapfrog and stand on your head, and the Lord be with you. Among the traditions that are being thus attacked, not intelligently, but most unintelligently, is a fundamental human creation called the household or the home. And yet he's writing this. This is 1929, this says. But, I mean, are we destroying the family and the home now? That a family is what you define it to be? 
I think I think the tragedy his father here that the most the, the people that most want to destroy the home and the family are those that have never known never had one. You know, uh, and and they don't know what it is. And insofar as they seem, should we say, romanticized depictions of it, they hate it because they never had it. It's the dog in the manger. Um, it's, it's that the same principle as the poor during the Bolshevik Revolution hating the rich, right? It's those that, that have never had a father, never had a family, hating those who have. Um, and, uh, you know, it, we can feel sorry for them, but the point is it's not based upon an, uh, a knowledge of what the family is. It's based upon an ignorance of the family because they never had it. And that's the real tragedy. Well, I will say in my 50 years of priesthood, 49, going on 50, and 60 years of being a Jesuit. Uh, I've said this before many times. I've seen nothing so beautiful and inspiring as a large, holy Catholic family. I mean, there's nothing like it. It's the most beautiful thing in the natural world, and it's supernatural as well. It's the witness. It's the witness, which we need more of them. And so, you know... Ideally, more people could experience that is even from outside, you know, and, and aspire to that. I, I would like to say, Joseph, while I agree with you that often the people who hate the family are people who tragically never enjoyed one, never was nurtured by one. And so they hate what they don't know or, or out of a weird sort of envy and spite. But I would also say that the way we educate young people, even people who come from good families or stable ones anyway, um, they kind of get indoctrinated into this whole success cult and careerist cult. And, um, and sometimes it's not until they're far down the road that they realize that there's something missing in life. And actually, because they once had a happy home or happy family, they can long for it again. And I think that's kind of what happened during COVID for a lot of families. You know, uh, people were often working from home, spending more time. And as much as that's hard, as we talked about in the last essay, uh, with you know, it's hard living with people, okay? But still, the joys of family life were rediscovered. And your statistic that you quoted exactly. of, of preschools and kindergarten enrollments being down, we're also seeing public school enrollments in general being down. People are not returning their kids to the, the, the way of life they had before. Uh, they're looking for alternatives. Apparently, there are more single-family households now post-COVID, and many of those by choice, that after this time spent with the family, now one spouse or the other is deciding to stay home more. And so there has been kind of a rediscovery. When, well, not single family, single worker. That's what I meant to say. Thank yeah. you. Uh, we're seeing um, a, an increase in single income families that were once two income families. And this is by choice, not simply because, oh, one of them got laid off or something like this. No, a lot of uh, families are rediscovering that the world inside the home and the hearth and the family really is a precious, beautiful place. Let, let, let me say something here, Vivian, because I, it, it, it's, it's, it's rare and beautiful. Um, your disagreement with me wasn't a disagreement with me. It was an addendum. Uh, right. And, 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 and an important addendum. It, it fleshed out what I was saying. A lot of the people that hate the families but never experienced one, but people now, and especially 
because of COVID, have experienced family and realise there's a richness there that they had deprived themselves of and their children of and, and, are, and are returning to it. And we have to hope that when the dust settles on the virus and these COVIDious times, that, um, that this will be a, a really truly beneficial outcome of it, which might actually be transitional in a positive sense to society. Yes. I, I want to comment on something and get your response. I mean, you talked about the problem of even a good family, stable family, sending the kids to schools and they're taught success and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, to me, that's not as big a problem because now success is seen a, as a white supremacist thing as part of white oh, privilege, you know. That's true. Uh, and what they're taught in school is, uh, you know, gender dysphoria that, you know, you mm. can't be sure you're a boy or a girl and you have to make your mind up, that sort of thing. And to me, that's more insidious than being taught to strive for success. Uh, and who's doing this? The people not having children and therefore not being able to form their own children, they want to get yours, you know, and, and inject the same poison that they themselves. Can, can I also... Can I say something about how arrogant that is on, on, a, on a level which they don't realize paradoxically? Why should they think it's important for people to make up their minds? So I, I, so I just, you know, the whole point, you've got to make up your mind whether you're a boy or a girl. Well, why? I mean, the point is you know, you're, you're, you're sexually determined, right? It's not a decision. And to insist that you have to make up your mind about something which your, mind, your, your genes have already made up for you uh, is an arrogance based upon... Um, uh, based upon nonsense, but also, you know, it's also based upon an insistence that you have to do what we tell you. You can't just, you know, you're a boy. No, you're not. In other words, make up your mind means you can't be a boy. You have to make up your mind by making up what I tell you your mind is, which is, you know, it's not actually making up your mind. It's brainwashing. And I mean, what's... Kids, kids, kids have never been confused about whether they're boys or girls in the past, and it's not because of preconditioning; it's because of biological determinism. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's just a question of now. No, you will make up your mind according to my mind, which and, is just another word for brainwashing. And what what's so ironic about it, Joseph, is that what they're doing to children in kindergarten, they'll say they'll see a boy wanting to sit and play with the crayons instead of maybe going and playing king of the hill and they'll say to that little boy oh you like art maybe you're supposed to be a girl and they'll say to the girl who wants to go out and play king of the hill with the boys oh maybe you're supposed to be a boy they have never been more rigid and binary about gender than they are now why can't the word they invented for that vivian was sexist that's what they're being no, the, uh, g girls do this and boys do that, right? I mean, exactly. So why can't a girl be sporty? Why can't a boy right. be an artist? I mean, uh, exactly. you know what? what they why are they putting these kids in these boxes? Every time I every time I write a sonnet, I feel I should be a girl, Vivian. It's a, it's a problem for me. Fight right. that, Joseph. Fight that problem. Okay, I'll fight it. I'll, I'll put right. it down. Well, I'll, this I think we've covered the meat here, the substance. I want to just do a little brief addendum, sidebar. Bottom of page 176, top of 177. Men cannot be educated by machinery. And though there might be a robot bricklayer or scavenger, there will never be a robot schoolmaster or governess. Now, that's 100 years ago he's saying that. Now, we do have robot uh, bricklayers now, actually, and robot scavengers, too. 
we're experimenting with robot teachers with the Zoom culture, you know, but that that cannot replace human direct content. It can supplement. There can be blended education, but you you can't substitute for a teacher in the classroom and a parent in the home with the children. Oh, and man. in fact, and in fact, the uh, talk to any teacher who's lived through this covidious times, as you like to call them, <laughs> Joseph, and that teacher will tell you that this Zoom stuff and everything has been mostly a failure. And like you say, Father, it isn't that you can't have some hybridization, but you can't replace in-person teaching. And and even the robot uh, craze, you know, I just saw an article recently that even the robots in Japan that they've created to do domestic work in the home and to try to look after elderly and that kind of thing, that those aren't working either. So, you know, when you've got inanimate objects moving around other inanimate objects, you know, robots, you know, maybe come in handy. But when you're talking about the care of people, of other people, robots can't replace that. Yeah. Let's, let's have a robot uh, distribution of communion, a robot uh, priest or whatever, you know. No, okay, so I think this is good. Those who are still with us, and I hope there's some of you out there, I think there are, uh, we're going to continue enjoying our discussion of the jolly journalist, G.K. Chesterton. If you don't have the book, well, that's your problem. We're going to follow this book, and we'll probably get three or four more essays in, but maybe read five ahead just to be ready in case somehow we come across one we don't want to discuss. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us at the Forum Book Club, and we hope to see you again next week. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.